<laughs> Hi guys, my name's Evan. If I don't know you, I'm a pastor of the downtown campus. Um, and I was thinking, daylight savings, it used to be this like small little gift or a little bit of a, uh, a hiccup, if you will. And then I had children. In some ways, I guess this is the only way that I wish that the government had control over my children's minds. But I guess my wife and I will have an extra hour this evening. All right, so is it safe to say the majority of us here are Christians or at least interested in the faith that comes from the Bible? Right? And in that then, we believe that there is a God who is sovereign over all things. This is one of the major foundations of the Bible, that God is all-powerful and that he created and sustains everything, that without him, nothing would exist. You guys tracking with me? This means that he best understands how humanity should live, both individually in your lives and collectively as a body, as a church. Even though we believe this, or at least adhere to a faith that does, a strange paradigm shift still occurs within us. We often operate out of the guiding philosophy that we understand what is best, that our ways are higher than God's ways. And this shows itself in endless ways through how we spend our time and our money, in our views on ourselves, on other people. And often to us, our ways seem like the best ways to function because it's what's, it is what feels right. And we have so many personal and cultural justifications of why our ways are better than God's ways. But when we live out of this set of beliefs, we are subject to our own limited wisdom and logic. We forget this. We are finite and flawed. Here today, gone tomorrow. We often only learn through experience, which means that we spend decades of making mistakes in order to figure out how to do it right. You know, I drive by Whiting Hague and Hague and Hague and Hague and Hague and Hague on my way home to my house, and one on the marquees list last week said, the life's so short, the craft's so long to learn. So often, our ways of thinking are heavily influenced by our emotions of the moment. So instead of remaining steadfast in our conviction, we ride the emotional roller coasters of our circumstances. In so many ways, we are blind to the best ways to live. Are you guys agreeing with me? You know, to move from the philosophical into an analogy, I have a dog who is totally blind. There's Lucy. So due to glaucoma over the last couple of years, she had to have both of her eyes removed. Now, I'm not just that guy that likes to bring pictures of his dog or kids to work, right? This is here because I think there's something that we can learn from her experience. So she has learned to navigate her way through our house. She knows where her food is, where her bed is. She definitely understands where our kids eat, and she gets pretty close to where the door is at. You know, a lot of times she's scratching at the wall, but she's like six inches away. Now, it's incredible the way that she's adapted. You know, I hope that if I go through something like this, I have the ability to adapt the way that she has. But when things change, she's in a whole different world. When a chair is moved, when a box is put in the middle of the living room, when my kids leave their toys out, the moment things change, she instantly has trouble and she needs to be guided to what she needs. This is the same for us. 
Over years, we learn to navigate through our normal. We understand the best ways to handle our relationships, our jobs, and the rest of what is routine until something changes. Whether it's external, like a sickness or a loss of a job, or internal, you're battling with lust or anger or greed. When things change, we run into trouble. Let's go back to Lucy for another moment. She has spent a majority of her life running outside, and it's definitely what she is made to experience. But now, she cannot go outside without a leash. There's been multiple times where we've grabbed her out of the street or the alley or whatever because she snuck out. And this is a totally different experience for her, but it gives her a chance to experience far more than our tiny, cramped house. Now, over time, Lucy and I have created a system of communication. She always walks to my left because she prefers attention of the leash to her right. And she also understands when I gently nudge her up with the leash that it's time to step up. Otherwise, she's going to run into a step or a curb. You know, really, I've become her seeing eye person. Now, for us, it's the exact same thing. We have been created for far, far more than just our cramped and boring normal. But in order to move out into the vast unknown, we must learn to trust our Creator's hand. He deeply desires for us to experience more love, more joy, more contentment, more excitement than what we normally experience. And so he leads us beyond what is normal and easy into what is truly good. And this is why the Bible is so important. It shows us thousands of years of our sovereign creator interacting with humanity. By reading and thinking through the ways that he operates, we can begin to see universal principles of how we are created to function. Timeless lenses through which we should see ourselves and other people. Joan is a perfect example of this. Today we're going to enter chapter 4 of Jonah's story. Last week we looked at Jonah finally obeying God and coming to Nineveh to pronounce God's judgment on the Assyrians. The wickedness of the Ninevites, right, that's the capital of Assyria, it has reached a level that God would no longer tolerate. Therefore, his judgment was going to be poured out. Jonah's job was to pronounce this coming just punishment. So he walks into the midst of their wickedness and declares God's plan to destroy their city. Miraculously, from top to bottom, the entire people turn away from their evil and violence and cry out to the God of the Israelites. Bill talked about this last week. If you want to look at more in depth, listen to that. But it would be like one of us walking down the strip of Las Vegas, proclaiming God's like, heart and judgment that's coming upon them. And then the next day, from the top to the bottom, the casinos, the strip clubs, totally turn to a different focus. Right? It's just impossible to even imagine that happening. And when the people do this, God does the incredible. He relents from his punishment. God changes his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. It's Jonah 3.10. Incredible. A people who were saturated in violence and prostitution and greed are shown mercy from a perfect God simply because of their repentance and cry for help. In chapter 4, we get a chance to see Jonah's reaction and gain a little insight into why God showed them mercy. So we're going to read through Jonah 3, 
10 through the entire chapter of 4. If you've got a Bible in front of you, go there. If not, it'll be behind me. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself. He sat, under it, he sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord appointed a bush, and he made it come over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he says, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about the Ninevites, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? Now there's so much truth in here. But what I want to focus in on this morning is Jonah's heart and God's heart. And often... If not always, we can tell the nature of an individual's heart, the deeper part of who they are, based on their actions, based on the way they live their life. So let's start with Jonah. Now, it's obvious Jonah was not happy. Witnessing God give his mercy to the Assyrians was very displeasing to him. Jonah then admits why he ran from God in the first place. And this is crucial. I would encourage you, if you didn't recognize that before, I'm guessing you did, but go back and read the entire page and a half again, now knowing Jonah's motivation to run. He ran because he knew who God was. Jonah was most likely taught that God is gracious and merciful. He was most likely taught that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that he's ready to relent from punishment. This verse The foundation of it comes from Exodus 34, 6, and 7. It's what Moses was telling people about God before they were released into the promised land. We see it throughout the Psalms as well when David is quoting Moses. Now Jonah had been raised studying the Torah, first five books of the Bible, learning about the way that God miraculously freed the Israelites from their inescapable bondage in Egypt and then led them through the wilderness to the promised land. And he stayed with them regardless of their complaints and their continual disobedience. He was also taught that God would fully atone or forgive the Israelites due to the sacrificial system. He most likely was told about how depraved the Israelites were during the day of the judges, but no matter how low they went, when they cried out to God, God always sent a deliverer. 
from all that Jonah had been taught and most likely experienced personally, he knew that God loved to be gracious and merciful, that he was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that he was ready to relent from punishment. And this is exactly what he did not want the people of Nineveh to experience. Showing love and mercy to the Assyrians made no sense to Jonah. You know, last week, Bill looked at a little bit of who the Assyrians were. Uh, Let me give you a quick reminder. They were known for their cruelty and violence, specifically in warfare. One commentator puts it this way, and it gets a little graphic. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so that way they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so that way they could be flayed alive and their skin displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who who survived the destruction of their city were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. Crazy, right? That that intensity of cruelty. And these were Jonah's neighbors who had been heavily taxing Israel for the last hundred years. So to put it in a little bit more context, it would be as if Canada was occupied by Hitler's Germany or ISIS. Imagine having them as our neighbors. It made no sense to Jonah to go and pronounce judgment on his enemies. But why? It's a little hard to make sense, right? Why wouldn't a prophet of God want to go and declare the coming wrath of an all-powerful, just maker of heaven and earth on this type of wickedness? It's because Jonah knew that this would be the only way that they could experience mercy. If someone does not know about the God of the Bible and his just character, they wouldn't have the ability to cry out for his mercy. But according to Jonah's own logic and emotion, the Assyrians did not deserve his love. Therefore, they did not deserve to receive the extravagant and illogical love of God. So let's just bring this a little bit closer to home. I should say a lot closer to home. I hope you're ready for a bit of a convicting message. Now as you sit here listening to Jonah and his reaction to God, Don't have to respond in any way. How many of you are judging Jonah right now? Wondering how a man of God could be so selfish and conceited to withhold God's love and mercy from an entire nation? How many of you have empathy for Jonah? You are relating to his logic and his emotions and the way in which he responded to God's call. tend to fall in the second camp. We all, every single one of us, have types of people that we do not feel deserve our love. I'll start at the top of the list. Rapists. Child molesters. Terrorists. Abusive fathers. Husbands. Drunks. Drug addicts. The homeless people that live off welfare. 
Maybe your prejudice stands based on somebody's race or their ethnicity. Native Americans, African Americans, Asians, Texans. <laughs> Gotta have a little humor in the midst of this song, right? <laughs> I know they feel that way about non-Texans. <laughs> Maybe your prejudice comes from a person's identity. The rich, homosexuals, the uneducated. Christians who profess their faith but do not live as if they are Christians. Democrats, Republicans. Right? The list could go on and on about the types of people that we just don't agree with, like, or straight up hate. But there are also most likely people in your life that you don't like, whether it's family, coworkers, acquaintances, people that are arrogant or cocky, people that are angry, people that are judgmental and condescending, people that are lazy or spoiled. Now, I know you have your reasons of why these people do not deserve to be treated with your love, your grace, and kindness, of why they're not worth you wasting your time upon them. I know I have my justifications for those people in my life. But as Christians... Followers of Jesus, children of God, just like Jonah, when we withhold our love from these types of people, then we are limiting their ability to experience God's love. Now, I know that God is all-powerful and not at all dependent on us for others to experience his love but a major part of God's redemptive plan for humanity is to use flawed people to bring his goodness to our broken world. See it throughout the entire Bible, but 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, just puts it so concisely. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. That's salvation, that's the gospel, that's us. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And Jonah and his story is a perfect illustration of this. If you have understood your need to be saved and you've cried out to the God of the Bible and Jesus who we see in the Bible for this salvation, then you are now an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador simply means that you are a representative. It means that you are to approach the world in the same way that Jesus did. That we are to operate out of God's will and his heart instead of our own logic and emotion. So, that begs a question. What are God's intentions and his heart for the people that I mentioned before? The ones that you do not like, the ones you can't stand to be around, the ones that you instantly jump to judgment and hatred when they come to your mind. Now we're in week four of our study of Jonah, so let's just look back at what we've already been looking at. Throughout this entire story, we see God's heart for the lost and the wicked. 
God calls Jonah to Nineveh so that the Assyrians can know of the just consequences of their wickedness and then have the opportunity to repent and receive mercy. When Jonah runs, God sends a storm and gives him a ride in a giant fish's belly. But through that storm, he also shows the sailors of his power and of his need to be glorified. You wonder how the rest of the sailors' lives changed based on that one moment. God then again calls Jonah to Nineveh so that the Assyrians have the ability to receive mercy, which God lavishly pours out upon them. At the end of chapter 4, we get to hear directly from God why he gave the Ninevites a chance to repent. Verses 9 through 11. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? Next week, we're going to dive deeply into Jonah and his struggle. And there's so much application for us. But right now, I want to focus only on God's heart. In verse 11, God states that he is concerned about Nineveh. Another way to translate concerned in the Hebrew is to look compassionately upon, to weep over. Gives you a little bit better of an understanding of what God's saying. To have compassion over someone to the point of weeping over their state of trouble means that you're fully attached in love to that person. Now, often we are in this place of compassion because of involuntary attachments. It's like a reactionary compassion. Think about the relationships you have with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your brothers and sisters, close friends. When we see them go through such intense hardship or trouble, we have no choice but to react with compassion. But due to God's sovereignty and total control over all things, his attachment must be voluntary. I know that's only missing two letters, but this is a foundational, fundamental shift that takes place. God only becomes concerned for people to the point of weeping because he has chosen to have this level of compassion. And this is not the only time that we read of God being described in this state. Before God asked Noah to build an ark, the author states that God's heart grieved due to the state of humanity. In Isaiah 63, 9, God has Isaiah write about his heart towards Israel. It was no messenger or angel, but his, God's presence that saved him. In his love and in his pity, compassion, concern, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of the old. And in Luke 19, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. As he came near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave you within you one stone upon another. 
because you did not recognize the time of the visitation of God. Now, this level of compassion is something that we understand. You know what that feels like. When you are overwhelmed by sadness, when your stomach twists and your throat clenches, when you can do nothing to stop the tears from cascading down your cheeks. This is how our creator feels when the ones that he created are heading towards their just judgment. Take a moment to consider that. The one who made everything has that form of emotional reaction to the wicked, to us, having to punish, having to suffer the punishments that we chose to suffer. And I believe nothing illustrates God's chosen level of compassion more than Jesus and his willingness to die a sacrificial death. It's all throughout the Bible, but pick two verses. First one's, Jesus talking, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, 8, but God proves or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I know this is Christianese. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this so many times, so please take a moment to shake the cobwebs and hear what God is telling us. In the midst of our wickedness, before humanity had tried to do anything to prove itself worthy of God's love, Jesus was willing to lay down his life for our redemption. He did this because of his deep, gut-wrenching compassion for us because he knew of the just judgment that lay ahead of each of us and was willing to do everything he could do so that way we could avoid destruction. Now the application of this is massive. And it can, and I hopefully will, impact every single aspect of your life. But as we end, I want to focus on the people that you don't like. I told you to get ready to be challenged. The people that bring you a feeling of disgust in the deeper parts of who you are. Remember, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been saved from so much destruction within your life and definitely eternally, then you are called to be his ambassador. This means that you are called to have compassion for the ones that you intrinsically hate. Now, logically, I believe this is impossible. How could you love and show love to the ones that you detest, to the ones that have proven their worth for your hate? I want to point out two things that we get out of Jonah's story. To do this, we must follow God's leading. Think about Jonah and his story. We must follow God's leading. But we must also remember who God is and who we are. As his representatives, ones who have been given the spirit to guide you, right? that's what Jesus says in John 16, that the spirit of truth will come to lead you into all truth. That's the role of the spirit within our lives, is to be our guide. 
Through that, God will give you opportunities to show compassion to the ones that you don't like. This is what he did for Jonah. And we'll look, next week we'll look at why he did that. And this is, what, this is also what he does for us. Now, instead of trusting your logic and emotion, which I know are strong and solidified, they make sense, instead of trusting those and hopping on a boat or walking in the other direction or making a snide remark, trust God. Simply do whatever God is leading you to do. Say whatever God is leading you to say. I know that sounds really simple. But in order to do this, in order to keep life simple and do what our creator says, we must remember who God is and who we are. So often, if not always, we forget our place in the universe and believe that we have far more understanding than we really do. Now remember my blind dog analogy. We must continually remind ourselves that we have such a limited perspective on reality that even though we have learned how to navigate our small and normal lives, that there is an entirely new world waiting for us to experience. But in order to leave behind the safety and the boringness of our routine, we have to trust the hand of our maker. When we feel him, to, when we feel him encourage us to go, or to stop, or to speak up, or to say, stay silent, we must always, always remind ourselves of how big and wise and loving God is. That his hand can be trusted because of the nature of his heart. That God wants to lead us to the and use us to bring his goodness into the world of others. Out of this understanding, all we have to do is simply do what he calls us to do. We get the pleasure, privilege, the convicting time of doing communion together. Guys, if you wouldn't mind coming up. Now, communion is for anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of this church. It does not matter. If you place your faith in Jesus as a son of God, this is for you. Now, the idea of communion, the bread and the juice is not holy. It's not Jesus' body itself, but it's a representation of that. It's a chance for us to have like a visceral experience with the gospel. To hold in our hands something that's symbolic of Jesus and his body. Something that's symbolic of his blood that he willingly poured out for us. So I ask you to wait before you uh, take the communion itself. I'd like to do it together. But while they're passing it out, when you receive it, just take time to think through, deeply meditate on the level of God's love for you. Right? You were wicked before you called out for salvation. But God, out of his deep, heart-wrenching compassion for you, pulled you out of that. but he has the same desire for those around you. Take some time to think about who those people are in your life that God wants you to extravagantly and illogically love.